0: Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan foreign policy expertise from our experts that you need to know about. I'm joined today by Jean Lee, who is the director of the Hyundai Motor Korea Foundation Center for Korean History and Public Policy here at the Woodrow Wilson Center. She won the competition for the longest name of a center <laughs> at the Woodrow Wilson Center.
1: It's a mouthful.
0: It's a mouthful, but we also call it the Korea Center, right? Indeed. And uh, Jane, it's so good to have you here. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and why don't you give us a little background of what you do here and what you did before you came here?
1: So the Korea Center focuses on issues related to North Korea and South Korea, and we try to get past the just the security issues and really look at both the history and the daily life of both North Korea and South Korea. So right now, of course, we've been so focused on the diplomacy and the issue of denuclearization Mm -hmm. uh, of North Korea and the diplomacy that has unfolded between North and South Korea, between North Korea and the United States. But it is really important for us as well to look at the economy of North Korea the history of these relationships, the economy of South Korea. So digging a little bit deeper. So we we do try to get past what you see in the news and try to provide a little bit of the history and context Mm -hmm. that we hope will help policymakers and the general public understand these issues.
0: Hmm. And you have a unique background to cover these issue areas, having been a former AP reporter who reported from Pyongyang, correct?
1: Yes. So I was the first American journalist granted permission to join the North Korean press corps, foreign press corps, along with Chinese and Russian journalists. So I spent three years on the ground. You know, I've been traveling to North Korea since 2008. So it's been a number of years, but I spent the better part of three years on the ground living and working with North Koreans. So when I say that we look at issues by getting past these surface understandings, it's Literally, I am using what I know from my experience on the ground, the books that I brought back, Mm -hmm. um, the relationships that I had, the conversations that I had, and really try to inform these issues with the understanding that I have from my time on the ground inside North
0: Korea. And that's just a fascinating conversation to have with you in general. And I wish I could have it right now. But why don't you bring us up to speed on the negotiations that have been going on between President Trump and the North Korean leader Uh, Kim Jong-un and how we got to this point and maybe where the sticking points are right now.
1: It's been a dramatic year and a half. So we have to start with the Singapore summit, which was the first time an American president sat down with a sitting North Korean leader that was in Singapore last year, last June. Uh, And so much promise, so much hype, so much expectation from that summit, uh, but really was very little more than a photo op, although I have to say expectations were really high. It was truly a historic moment. Uh, But what has not happened in the wake of that and in their, in even the lead up to their second meeting, which was in Hanoi in February, so this past February, the two leaders have not allowed their working level negotiators, have not empowered them, so have not really allowed them to carry out substantive work in negotiating a nuclear deal. Hmm. Um, what we've really seen is an unusual relationship between the leaders of the United States and North Korea. They've developed this very odd relationship or friendship Mm -hmm. it's a bromance Bromance, I like to call it a bromance Uh, (laughs) and because it's been so personal between the two of them it has there hasn't they haven't really allowed any space for their teams Hmm. to develop relationships and so so much of the expectations have come from these one-on-one meetings but unfortunately these one-on-one meetings haven't yielded much so we had a third meeting it was very quick and very brief at the DMZ in the end of June. So we've had three mm-hmm. meetings so far, but since then, radio silence. Hmm. So at this point... And some missile tests. And so after that meeting that also was seen as something that could potentially uh, be a breakthrough and get the talks going again, North Korea then proceeded throughout August to test short-range ballistic missiles. This was something that North Korea, I think Kim Jong-un was really testing Donald Trump. Hmm. Like, how far could he go? How far could he push it with Donald Trump? And he got the reaction he wanted, which was that President Trump said, well, it doesn't violate any agreements that that Kim Jong-un and I made, because the agreement that they made in Singapore was that North Korea wouldn't test long-range ballistic missiles that are designed to strike the mainland United States. Mm-hmm. But what that does is when you test short-range ballistic missiles, it makes the South Koreans mm-hmm. and the Japanese nervous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I should also point out- Both that, U.S. allies. Yes. And, and both know, we know places have,
0: where we have troops. Exactly.
1: We've got uh, some 80,000 U.S. troops in the region, uh, more than 28,000 hun- 28, in South Korea alone, but I would say the number of Americans overall in the region is more than 200,000. So it isn't actually an issue that's divorced from the United States, mm-hmm. But uh, so there are still Americans and American sites that will be targeted. However, I should just point out that while it may not violate a, an agreement between the two of them, it does violate... UN Security Council resolutions that prohibit North Korea from any ballistic missile activity. Mm. So that's something to remember is that I think North Korea was testing Donald Trump to see how far they could go, see how he would react. Also wanting to put pressure on South Korea and Japan and getting them all riled up Mm. while hoping to get them riled up. Hoping that creating tension in the region would, by extension, force the leaders of those countries to put some pressure on Donald Trump. Because what... The two sides, the U.S. and the North Korea, need to see is some change in the baseline positions on the U.S. and North Korean side so that when and if and when they sit down at negotiating, at the negotiating table again, Mm -hmm. they've budged a bit from the hardline positions that they staked out in Hanoi. So we've seen uh, North Korea... uh, test these short-range missiles. Also, the North Koreans said this is a response to the fact that the United States and South Korea were holding joint military exercises, which they always rail against, Mm -hmm. which they always say is rehearsal for an invasion or rehearsal for war. And according to President Trump, Kim Jong-un promised him at the DMC that these would stop or that they would get back to negotiations once those military exercises stopped. Hmm. So there was a lot of hope that after August 20th, when these drills ended, that we would see a resumption. And I think we're now at that point where we're like, well, it's been a couple of weeks mm-hmm. and we haven't heard anything. What's
2: next? Right.
1: The other thing that we're, uh, we were looking at was the U.N. General Assembly meeting coming up in New York mm-hmm. in September Traditionally, North Korea sends the foreign minister, and that's an opportunity for some engagement. So last year we did see that as an opportunity for Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, to meet with North Korea's foreign minister. North Korea has said he's not going this year. So Hmm. that also is something we're looking at as a sign sign of their lack of readiness Hmm. to resume those negotiations. And so that's where we are right now. The joint military drills have ended in South Korea. We still have this period of uh, no communication, very little communication with the North Koreans and the Americans, and then a missed opportunity with the UN General Assembly.
0: So you mentioned how it is remarkable it is that an American president is meeting with a North Korean leader. And this is something very different from past U.S. presidents, the way that past U.S. presidents have gone after this is really to bring them to the table with several other other countries. Um, But what is the end goal here? Is it a denuclearization of North Korea?
1: So in Singapore, the U.S. president and the North Korean leader put out a very sparse statement And one of the things they agreed to was the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And that is exactly the wording that Kim Jong-un wanted. Because to him, that means not only that he gives up some elements of his nuclear program, but that the United States also give up some elements of its nuclear deterrent in the region. Mm -hmm. And so I think
0: we we have have to be very... Do we have nuclear deterrence in South Korea?
1: So we do not have nuclear weapons in South Korea. However, the United States has what we call the nuclear umbrella. Mm -hmm. And that means they've got assets ready to go in the region. Mm -hmm. And so North Korea has been very clear that if they're going to give up nuclear weapons or new elements of their nuclear program, they expect the United States to withdraw some of that umbrella as well. Hmm. And frankly, I don't think the United States is going to do that. And as a result, North Korea is not going to give up its assets either. And so there's a basic misunderstanding here. If you wanted to be very clear about what you wanted, then you should have said the denuclearization of North Korea. If you say the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, you're including all the assets in South Korea and beyond. And so there is a basic
0: how, I guess, miscommunication. How does the beyond factor into this? If you're talking about denuclearization in the Korean peninsula in my mind and I'm not an expert on this but it seems like the assets that would be on the Korean peninsula are so they can, they're interpreting the, I'm sorry they're interpreting this as being what we would have in Japan or anywhere else
1: there are no there are no nuclear weapons on the Korean peninsula and so they are referring to nuclear assets in the region so it's semantics in a sense hmm. but I do think the North Koreans thought that they had very masterfully and skillfully and very cleverly fooled President Trump into signing something that would ensure that they could hold on to their weapons. To explain it a little bit better, I do think that North the I do think that the North Koreans are willing to give up some elements of their program. But what they want to do is drag out this process and create a situation, negotiate a deal that allows both the Americans and the North Koreans to hold on to their some elements of their program while giving up some pieces of it. Hmm. As far as they're concerned, the best agreement they could come up with is one that allows them to keep some of their nuclear weapons, their deterrent. Now, to explain, they want to be recognized as a nuclear power, as a nuclear state, along with a handful of other countries in the world that have mm-hmm. that status. And we don't expect the United States to give up its nuclear weapons. And that's what North Korea is going to say, hey. Mm-hmm. If you're not going to give up yours, why should we give up ours? So they're trying to create this situation where they can hold on to their weapons while still championing a nuclear weapons-free world, just like the United States does. Mm. So just like the United States actively rallies against nuclear proliferation while holding on to its nuclear weapons, North Korea wants to be in that position as well. Advocating and saying that they support denuclearization while holding on to their nuclear right.
0: weapons. They want to join the club where they can exactly. say, you all can't have them.
1: Exactly. Does that make sense? <laughs> I think that makes sense. That's what they're thinking, and that's what they're where they're trying to go. And I have to say, unfortunately, we're almost there. We have let and we have encouraged North Korea and facilitated the construction of their nuclear weapons program to the point where it may be inevitable. Hmm. We've got to acknowledge.
0: But there's no coming back from where they are right now.
1: So, it, what has happened with the rhetoric of 2017, so we had this period, I like to call it fire and fury, mm-hmm. uh, where President Trump was, before the bromance happened, mm-hmm. there was a lot of antagonism. Gosh, it seemed so long ago. <laughs> I
0: know.
1: Uh, little, the Little Rocket Man period, yeah. the the trading of insults, the trading of threats, allowed Kim Jong-un to justify the testing of nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles to the point where he got that program uh to where it is today. Um, but I should say he's also continuing to build it with these short-range ballistic missile launches. So in some sense, that period of fire and, f- fire and fury got him to the point where he was like, okay, I've gotten my weapons to the point where I think they can get us into the club.
0: Right Now we it, can talk.
1: Now we can talk. <laughs> uh, so, But the in terms of your question about the ultimate goal, I mean, I do think that the ultimate goal of Kim Jong-un of his father, Kim Jong-il, of his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, they do ultimately want to use their nuclear weapons and their weapons program to get the United States to the negotiating table and to come to some agreement that brings a formal end to the Korean War uh, and as a result also brings them the economic windfalls that they expect Mm -hmm. will come along with that agreement.
0: With the reduction of sanctions and things like that.
1: Yeah. They are going to sell off pieces of the nuclear program from what they really need, which is money.
0: Interesting, and really, so really, they want the recognition, and with that recognition, they think will come an economic benefit.
1: The recognition. So there are two, there are several parts of it to it, but the recognition allows Kim Jong would allow Kim Jong Un to hold on to his weapons, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he sees that, and he's told his people. That the nuclear weapon is their treasured sword. It's what protects them. Right. It makes them unassailable. It makes it hard for any other country to attack them because they've got these nuclear. So I just. So
0: it seems impossible politically, even for a dictator.
1: You've got it. So.
0: (laughs) To pull back on that.
1: Exactly. And he has staked his whole reputation, his whole rise to his whole claim to leadership Mm -hmm. on the fact that he's done this. Yeah. He's not going to give it up that would put him in such a weak weakened position right. and such a vulnerable position. So what he's trying to do is get to a position where he can hold on to that major the major element the main elements of it while perhaps bartering off pieces of it. So it has a huge importance back home as well as internationally. So he's been mapping out this strategy that addresses how do I secure my legacy at home? How do I ensure my place internationally so that I'm not threatened by outside forces and how do I make money off of this?
0: Hmm. A cornerstone of U.S. policy under previous presidents has been to have China at the table with all of the negotiations with North Korea. And it seems like we've taken a step back from that. We've always wanted to have China at the table, seeing North Korea as sort of a client state of the Chinese. What's the dynamic now?
1: So I think... We need to be very careful in looking at the North Korea-China relationship, first of all. Although North Korea is dependent upon China financially, they don't always listen to China. And that relationship is not always good.
0: There is thousands of years of history between the Chinese and North. It's not just the last 70 years, right? Uh, So there's uh, asking the Chinese to kind of come and step in as the big brother of the North Koreans doesn't always get us what we want.
1: So that would be a very simplistic way of approaching it because... Well, I am
0: simplistic. And that's <laughs> why... Uh, <laughs> but this is why I talk to experts. But
1: it's not... So not to criticize you, <laughs> but... No, I, do, I think that it would be simplistic to assume that we can just ask China to step in and that China would act in U.S. interests. Mm-hmm. They have their own interests and the relation their relationship with North Korea is very complicated and i think you're absolutely right we need to understand that these countries have thousands of years of very difficult history and for me being in North Korea it was very clear that there was a a, v- a pointed push against chinese influence a mm. very strong resentment toward Chinese influence and China's outsized role in its future. Of course, they're grateful to China for stepping in. I mean, Mm -hmm. they would not even exist if China hadn't stepped into the Korean War in the 1950s and helped them out. But frankly, let's be honest, China had its own interests. Mm -hmm. They did not want US troops up on its border. And so we have to remember that all of these, although we think of it as a client state of China, North Korea very much has its own interests and will act independently of China when it needs to. Now, I am just going to present the Chinese, oh, sorry, the North Korean point of view when it comes to whether to allow China at the table. I think China, I think North Korea has its own interest for keeping these negotiations bilateral and separate. They are actually the North Koreans are actually weighing and playing the united states and china off one another Mm. so for example they are uh, they're hedging their bets they're trying to figure out whether it's better to uh stick with this negotiation with donald trump and actually in the midst of the stall in the u.s north korean negotiations they've quietly been talking to the chinese Mm. it's more helpful for the north for the north koreans and it's more in their interest to work these two channels separately and play them off one another. It would be much more strategic for China and the United States to stand together and work together, but it's in North Korea's interest to make sure that they're keeping these separate tracks and it gives them options. Mm. So, and like I said, I'm just presenting the North Korean point of view and the North Korean strategy. I do think that overall... All of the countries in the region looking to deal with North Korea would benefit from standing together and coordinating with one another and not allowing North Korea to play the divide and conquer game and keeping them guessing. Um, But we have to recognize that each country has its own interests, both regionally and with North Korea and with one another that sometimes make it hard for them to communicate. And these are countries with very complicated histories. When we look at it from Washington, it seems very simple. Why do they not get along, or why do? They... But they have their own very long history, much longer than I our guess.
0: history. Our our scope of reference is much smaller, and we're in a different area of the world exactly. because we have Canada and Mexico as neighbors and oceans on either side. So they have a much different view. Yes,
1: absolutely. And I think that uh, while we tend to look at what's happening with the US North Korea negotiations, I'm also keeping an eye on North Korea's outreach to China and to Russia, because they always try to play those relationships off of one another. And the fact that there's been some quiet diplomacy between China and North Korea, I hope that the North Koreans are using that contact to get some advice on how to move forward, mm-hmm. and not perhaps to strategically figure out how to align more closely with China uh, to put some pressure on the United States. But probably a little bit of both is going on. Uh, but I'm paying a, I'm paying close attention, and so that's something we should we should always look at. Not just the U.S. North Korean relationship, but also how North Korea is engaging with other countries yeah. and trying to encourage those countries to be productive in their interactions with North Korea.
0: One final question before I let you go back to watching all of these issues. As an expert, looking out onto the horizon, what's out there that maybe a policymaker needs to know um, that hasn't popped yet, but could be something that comes up?
1: In the context of the North Korea-U.S negotiation. We need to pay attention to the fact that Kim Jong-un set an end-of-year deadline. He has said that he will be patient and he will give the United States until the end of the year to change its, what he calls, the hostile policy. Uh, and so there is a very clear timeline. And and we should be mindful of it because I, I keep those things in mind because I think we'll see some activity. Hmm. We should keep in mind that North Korea is at this point taking a step back and trying to strategize. But they're going to very carefully calibrate their next step. And that ne- that next step is going to be very key to how things are going to unfold in the next couple months. But we should just be mindful of that end-of-year deadline. And so North Korea watchers, we're all
0: mm-hmm.
1: trying to gauge what's going to happen if nothing happens before the end of the year. So the question is, will they return to the typical pattern of provocation to get President Trump's attention? Or will they decide that actually there's too much potential to upend it completely with a provocation, such as a long-range ballistic missile test, and give some space to negotiation? So we'll be watching to see what happens in the next couple months, mindful of that end-of-year deadline, and also mindful of the potential for a return a provocation if Kim Jong-un decides that's his only option.
0: Well, that is fascinating. Thank you so much for your insights into a, a place that I think a lot of policymakers look at and it's kind of a black box and don't really understand. So we're grateful to have your expertise. So thanks so much for being on the program.
1: Thanks for having me and definitely encourage your listeners to reach out to us if they want to get a little bit more insight from the inside out, because that's something that we do at the Wilson Center very well, I think, is provide that that other perspective.
0: Thank you, Gene. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Need to Know podcast. Be sure to subscribe to continue hearing our cutting-edge discussions with the best experts on the issues you need to know about. From the Wilson Center, have a wonderful day.